Okay, if you could make your way to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. For those of you who don't know where in the world that is, uh, that is right after Proverbs. If you don't know where that is, stick your hand in the middle and you'll pretty much be close. So, um, But while you're on your way there, I want to read a little bit from Genesis 2, um, starting with verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. Ecclesiastes 2, beginning in verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all that I, for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave up my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's nothing better for a person that he should, that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner He has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. From chapter 4, Verse 4 through 6. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. A better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls full of toil and a striving after the wind. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Heavenly Father, graciously open your holy and eternal word to us poor people and establish us in the knowledge of your will and direct all who err in your word to the right way again so that we may live according to your divine pleasure. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, way back when we still lived in Florida, when I was uh, employed by Ace Hardware, uh, there was a morning I was getting ready for work, and uh, our daughter, who was very young at the time and still trying to figure things out, she's still trying to figure things out, but 
don't tell her that. <laughs> said, Daddy, do you like your job? And I admitted to her that I really didn't, um, and then proceeded to take my shower and cry in the shower, uh, because I found that um, I was not made to work in hardware. It revealed um, great areas of incompetence and ignorance within me. And it didn't provide what uh, I needed to take care of my family. And so my time at Ace Hardware, while in some ways an incredible blessing, and I'm thankful for uh, the friend who gave me the job. So if she listens, I'm not saying anything about you. It was just hard for me to do that. I'm not alone. Uh, the Congressional Report, uh, Work in America, relates the following. Uh, significant numbers of American workers are dissatisfied with the quality of their working lives. Dull, repetitive, seemingly meaningless tasks, offering little challenge or autonomy, are causing discontent among workers at all occupational levels. Perhaps you found yourself in that brief description. Now, lest you think that I'm only talking about people who leave home to go to work, uh, this also describes many what we would call household engineers or stay-at-home moms. They're in the same sorts of place as well. And kids, lest you think this doesn't apply to you, I will remind you that right now... Uh, your job is to learn. And you sometimes struggle with the repetitive nature of math homework or having to uh, outline one more sentence, um, memorizing more spelling words. That can be grievous to you. It can seem dull, repetitive, and seemingly meaningless. And yet, it's not. We have to trust God in that. And so, in a sense, this, uh, this sermon is not just for people, male or female, who go off to a job somewhere. It's for all of us, because all of us work in some way, shape, or form. But this rises, this, this kind of brings up this, this big question for me. Um, how is it that we should think about our relationship to work? I think that's a very important kind of question. And I'm going to approach it, just as I did last time, uh, through the lens of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And so and we're going to do all of this in the form of a question and then an answer at the end. And so how does creation inform our relationship to work? I'll remind you, as I, remind, as I said last week, that Genesis was written in a background of competing views about creation and therefore also about work. The people of Israel did not have the same perspective on work as the nations around them, okay? So let's not think that uh, we're in a unique position because we're surrounded by so many competing worldviews. The Israelites had the same issue, okay? And so uh, Moses is speaking to that very thing so that they understand uh, how they are to think about work, how, what God's intention is for their work, and as we'll see, what went wrong with their work. 
Most of the nations around them saw creation as the result of conflict, the battle between the gods. In fact, uh, in one of the myths, uh, creation is made out of the dead body of, T- of the goddess Tiamat. Um, but others believe that work was essential. Uh, not work, creation, uh, the universe was essentially an accident, similar to uh, what many materialists believe in our day. If they were uh, theists and believed it was the result of conflict between the gods, then they usually understood human beings as being slaves of the gods, and in particular, uh, the slave of the king who alone was made in the image of God. Another way of thinking about this would be if we are the result of Darwinian evolution, we would tend to see work as purely utilitarian. Uh, we do it uh, as much as we can to get what, that which we want, and we do no more. And therefore, work would not be subject to any morality aside from the social constructs of our particular community. And, uh, you, and obviously, you can push those as much as you want because they're constructs. They're not eternally valid. So, now, thankfully, most people who believe in Darwinian evolution don't go to that logical conclusion, but that is the logical conclusion. Instead of that, we see, as we, as I mentioned before in Genesis 2, that on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because he rested on it. God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, that word work shows up three times in those couple of verses. God works. And this is speaking specifically of the work of creation. Uh, it's not speaking of the work of providence, and the Westminster Confession of Faith makes that distinction, uh, because we see Jesus making that, as, that distinction essentially in John chapter 5, uh, verse, uh, I believe it's 25. Um, the Father is always working. He's always sustaining the things that he made. And so this is speaking about that, that God had a universe creation project, shall we say, and God completed that project in six days. He created, he separated, he gathered, he made things, he placed things, he planted things, and God worked. Our God is a God who works. He's not a God who just sits there and barks orders. And so, on the seventh day, we see that God rested from that work of creation, thereby establishing for us a pattern of work and rest. Of work and rest. Not just on the daily basis where we sleep, but also the weekly basis for a day set apart for rest. Now, we didn't read it this morning. We read it last week, but we see again from chapter 1 that, that man, male and female, is made in God's image, that we were created to enjoy work just as God enjoys work, and we're made to enjoy rest just as God enjoys rest. And we're, to, we're made to enjoy them in a proper balance. And that when we get that balance out of sync, what happens is that we enjoy neither our work nor our rest. We're either overwhelmed with our work or we're bored because of our rest. Too much rest. We were made to work. 
It's part of our essential nature because we have been made in the image of God. And so we see as well from chapter 2 that the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden, not to stare at the beautiful flowers and the fruit, but rather to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree, every tree in the garden, every single one, except one, the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so what we see here, and we're going to see it later as well in, in chapter 3, is this tie between eating and working that Adam was not expecting to eat without working. And yet we see God's uh, abundant provision with all kinds of trees that produced all kinds of fruit, uh, as well as, uh, I'm sure, the vegetables that were around him. And all of these things, Adam and then Eve could enjoy to their delight. And so Adam was placed in the garden. The design of God was to work in order to produce fruit so that you can enjoy that fruit. And so what we see, similar to what we talked about last week, work, just like creation, was meant for our good, our well-being, and our work was also meant for creation's well-being. Again, that symbiotic kind of thing that we mentioned last week with regard to creation and stewardship. So as I pondered what work is, I, I kind of come up, with this thing, and I'm not stealing this from somebody, I, I thought of it. That might, that means it might not be very good. You, work is using our gifts and abilities to meet the needs of others through resources of creation. And so you're taking the raw materials of creation and you're using the particular gifts and strengths and abilities that you have to reform, to reshape that those resources of creation uh, to meet the needs of other people. Why am I including that meet the needs of other people part? Well, because God is love. And because I have been made in the image of God, I am intended to Love. And so work is part of how I love God, but it's also part of how I love other people. That love has both the vertical and the horizontal dimension, and so our work has a vertical and a horizontal dimension. That's how God designed it. In His wisdom and in His goodness. That is how God designed us and how God designed work. It's not just work, though, but uh, Alan Ross notes that these words to cultivate or to keep or work it and keep it are often used within the context of worship. And so we could therefore, I believe, rightfully come to the conclusion that our work as uh, created beings is intended to be part of our worship to God. And so whether uh, you're a household engineer or whether you're a student in a school or a teacher in that school or an engineer at Raytheon or anywhere, any place else, your work was intended to be part of your worship 
to God who gives you the strength and ability to use for His glory. And so Christ, through whom and for whom everything was made, as we saw last week from uh, John 1 and Colossians 1, Christ designed us to work as worship in His world. Okay? Well, that leads us to another question. If work is so good for us, why does it seem so incredibly frustrating and futile? The teacher in Ecclesiastes uh, experienced the toil. That's a word that pops up eight times there in cha- that section of chapter 2 that we read. He, he speaks about the vanity or meaninglessness or, or utter futility of it. The, the, it's, a, it's like a vapor. He mentions that three times. It was so bad that he says he gave his heart to despair and that work was a vexation. Now, there's a word you don't hear all the time. And, and, and you know, just yesterday we were watching something and, and someone said they were vexed or, or some form of the, of the verb vex. And I thought, you know, that's a word I need to use more often, that I am sorely vexed. Um, work vexes us for a number of reasons. And the author of Ecclesiastes was expressed, he gave his heart to labor and all he discovered under the sun, okay, one of the other key phrases there, um, was vanity, meaninglessness, toil, vexation. We see in chapter four there that he experienced work as envy-driven toil, that the only reason people actually worked, it seemed, was because they wanted what everyone else had. And maybe they didn't have the guts to steal it, thankfully. But it was futility. It was without proper profit. His heart was restless. Instead of finding rest on that Sabbath day, he was still without rest. And to top it off, you die and you leave it to somebody who didn't earn it and they might not use it well. How many rich people have discovered that after the fact that they didn't prepare their children to uh, use the millions that they were going to give them an inheritance wisely and they're squandered? The question is, why? did work which was intended to be a blessing become something of a curse? And it depends on your worldview. Okay? This is one of the places where how you view the world matters. The Greeks, for instance, first off, uh, viewed work as punishment from Zeus. And it was released upon the world through Pandora's box. So when that's opened up, all of a sudden, apparently no one worked before then in their mythology, and now all of a sudden work is there, and it's bad. And so they saw work as punishment. And as a result, what they, uh, how they framed it within their own society was that work was beneath free people. Okay, It was beneath the philosophers. And it was beneath the kings and the noble people. And it was really for the artisans and the slaves. And so they developed essentially a caste system 
Great Greece, right? Not as great as we sometimes think it is. Work was bad, and the right people got to avoid it because they made the wrong people do it all. We could look at Marxism and socialism, which placed the problem and in the terms of class conflict and one's alienation from labor. And, 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 the, and Marx was right in terms of that idea of alienation from labor. We see that aspect right there in Ecclesiastes, but he doesn't have the right solution. Okay, so he, he's made in the image of God too. He can have some right ideas, but that doesn't mean they're all right. There's a sliver of truth in what Karl Marx says. We could look at Jean, oh wait, now I just messed it up. Jean-Claude Van Damme just caught into my head. (laughs) Rousseau, I'm just going with the last name, Rousseau. (laughs) Rousseau and his romanticism with the idea of the noble savage and that people are born with this sort of nobility and the reason they become turn out so bad is civilization. They get civilized and they become corrupt and and, and all of that. And, and to, to uh, Rousseau, I want to go, did you never have a toddler? Because th- that uncivilized toddler, two of the most frequent words they use are, No! And mine. <laughs> they can't say Duplo yet, but it's mine. Yes, children, you all did that. Yes, adults, remember, you all did that. And sometimes we still do that today. <coughs> so, what does the Scripture say? Well, Genesis 3, again, we're going back to Genesis 3. We see that Adam obeyed Eve, ate the fruit from the tree, that the one tree that they weren't supposed to eat from. And God came and in judgment placed a curse. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Now, the good news is they'll eat. The bad news is that now it includes a lot of pain. It includes the fact that thorns and thistles are growing right upside the the cucumbers and potatoes and uh, tomatoes and everything else they want to eat. And they produce all of this by the sweat of their face. And so we see that the toil, the futility, the frustration, all of that arises because of the sin of Adam, the disobedience of Adam, and God's response to that disobedience by bringing a curse. And so that's why we experience this frustration and futility. I have this. It is my uh, Dilbert... Um, I can't remember what they call this thing. Yeah, the wrist thingy. I bought this in my days at Ligonier because I thought it was quite appropriate. <laughs> we'll be getting a new bungee boss sometime today. 
And then next frame, in comes the bungee boss. Hi, I'm your new boss. Let's change everything before I get reassigned. Whoops, too late. Goodbye. He was like a mentor to me. I think he made a difference. Now, we find Dilbert humorous in part because there's an element of truth to it. We have experienced this. And so whether we're talking about office space or the office or uh, any of those other humorous things, part of why we find them so funny, if we do, sometimes we don't, but I'm sick and twisted, so I do, um, is because they closely approach, although they exaggerate, situations that we actually find in the workplace. You, you, you almost find a shrewd. You find a, you find a guy like Jim, and sometimes you've had a boss like Michael Scott. Okay? More than one, perhaps. So, the scripture's honest about the futility of work, but also gives us the reason for the futility of work. And so we see these uh, thorns and thistles grow alongside the fruits and veggies, pain and sweat, proceed the food that we uh, enjoy. And so we find, first off, that uh, we are subject, or work is subject to natural problems. There are floods, there are droughts, there's blights, there are recessions, there are shifts sometimes in technology that mean that your job no longer matters. And you who have spent 30 years doing it have to find something else to do. Right now in Germany, they're experiencing a record drought, and that means that farmers are in big trouble. Okay, The people can import food all they want, but the farmers won't get any money because all their crops are being destroyed by a drought. That happens because of the curse. Not, the problem, again, isn't work, but the curse that has been placed upon it. But it's not only the, the, the frustration and futility not only come from these natural problems, but also we're subject, work is subject to sin, sinful corruption. Our sinful corruption. The world is marked by greed. The love of money fills many a person's heart. And it is the root of all kinds of evil, as it is said in 1 Timothy 6. People are marked by laziness. As the Proverbs note, there are a lot of Proverbs about laziness, actually. The sluggard is one of the most, is one of the most popular features, so to speak, or frequent features, as I should say, within the Proverbs. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and poverty will come upon you like a bandit. As a door upon its hinges is the sluggard in his bed. Lots of movement. Not getting anywhere. Nothing productive. The sluggard has dreams but never tries to pursue them in any way, shape, or form. But it's not just about greed. It's not just about laziness. We see oppression. Greed gone wild and uh, oppressing people and taking advantage of them. We see this in the prophets a lot. We see it primarily in uh, Amos six, uh, yeah, 4 and 6. Is it 4? 2 and 4. You know, the righteous selling the poor like sandals. 
crushing and oppressing people, to exploit them, so they you can be become rich at their expense. We we see the reality of theft taking place. Fraud is also something that's frequent in our world. Think for a moment, Enron, <coughs> one of the one that, that was part of the great economic collapse, uh, as as Enron manipulated its books and lied and. Thousands of people were built out of their money. All the different confidence games and pyramid schemes that, that have taken place over the years that have made news. People who lie about you at work because they want to get ahead of you at work. All of that is rooted in Adam's disobedience and the curse that follows. Speaking of laziness, I just love this quote by Martin Luther. I had to break it out. God does not want to have success come without work. He does not want me to sit at home, to loaf, to commit matters to God, and to wait till a fried chicken flies into my mouth. (laughs) That would be tempting God. So the, the, the life of faith does not mean passivity with regard to our employment. It, it, the, the life of faith includes engagement in work because there are no flying fried chickens. It's too late for them to fly unless someone throws them. But I suspect no one's going to throw one at you unless they're mad at you. So... But to sort of paraphrase uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the line between good and evil runs through everyone's heart when it comes to the workplace. It, it runs through employers and it runs through employees. Our tendency is to think it all runs in the other person's heart, not our own, right? Employees want to get as much as they possibly can out of their employer for as little work as is humanly possible. That doesn't mean everybody does that, but a lot of people do. Okay? And if you're an employer, you know it. You've seen it. You've argued about it. Okay? If you supervise people, you understand. Employers, on the other hand, want to give as little as possible for as much work as they can get out of you. Okay? And so we see this tension uh, that emerges but let us not fall into the uh, wrong understanding that only one side of this equation has guilt. There's plenty of guilt to go around. I was amused because uh, one of the safeties of the uh, Seattle Seahawks, his agent, he's currently uh, holding out for more money, and his agent said that capitalism only works for some people. And I'm thinking, he's made $40 million so far. I think it's working okay for him. But he's pointing to the owners who have billions and thinking that somehow that's unfair. This is what we do. These are the lies we tell ourselves because of sin. So we see that in the fall, Christ subjected our work to frustration and futility, and I would say to humble us. Misery comes to humble us so that we will cry out for redemption. So, 
how can the frustration and futility of work be overcome? And again, it, it goes back to this idea of what's your worldview. Depends how you view the problem. For instance, socialism engages in class warfare. And so we see that some politicians, because of their understanding of the world and because of their understanding of economics, try to incite class warfare. If only the rich would pay their fair share. That's a very vague statement. I'm sure the rich feel they pay their fair share. Enlightenment, or the Enlightenment, uh, frames work in terms more of a self-interest, and so um, you get what you want. You negotiate your deal, so to speak, uh, usually that focuses on money, but sometimes uh, it can extend beyond money. Um, I'm not going to use that illustration. So, But it's really a, a negotiation or manipulation process to get what you want. If uh, you have a postmodernist kind of view. They frame work as kind of self-actualization so that you, you know, you do what you want to do so that you can become the real you, whatever that particular thing means. Follow your dreams. And so there are people who try to turn their hobbies into jobs. And uh, for some people that works, but for most people, not so much. My, a lot of my brother's money went into uh, supporting his wife's dream job that uh, was a money hole. So maybe that's why I'm not so excited about that. But if the problem is sin, okay, it must be dealt with. And there's only one person who can deal with sin, and that is Jesus. Jesus is the only one who deals with sin because he is the only one who never sinned. He's a man because of his incarnation and therefore he's under the law, born under the law and obeyed the law perfectly, never sinned. And because he's man, he can die for men and women. So we see Jesus in Galatians 3 as being the one who frees us from the curse because He has become a curse for us. He in His person bore the curse for us. As we saw last week, Philippians 2, again, comes into this equation because Jesus took on the form of a slave. And what does a slave do? Works but doesn't get the benefit of his work. Jesus was obedient even to death upon the cross in the place of sinners. And so we see that Jesus did the work that we were supposed to do, but didn't. And Jesus died the death that our work deserved, or our lack of work, or our corrupt work deserved. And so because of this, uh, we see, first of all, faith in Christ. When we trust 
in Jesus Christ, we receive forgiveness for our work-related sins. We receive forgiveness for our greed. We receive forgiveness for the ways in which we perhaps oppressed others. We, we receive forgiveness for our own laziness or whatever it might be. The sins we have committed with regard to work, we receive forgiveness for because of Jesus Christ, received by faith and faith alone. And having been uh, having believed in Jesus Christ, we are united with Jesus Christ, and therefore we are able to become more of the worker that God intended us to be as mature in Christ. We're being renewed in the image of God because of our union with Jesus Christ. And so we become more and more of the worker God intended for us to be. And that includes a putting off of the old man in Adam and a putting on of the new man in Christ. And so we see redemption kind of playing out not just in our initial acceptance with God because of uh, faith in Christ, but also because of the fact that we now become like Jesus Christ in that thing called sanctification. So we see passages like Titus 2 becoming important to us. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And here's the key thing I want us to say training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So it's the grace of God that delivers us from the wrath of God, but it's also the grace of God that teaches us to renounce those very things that we used to live in, the laziness, the greed and the corruption, the lies, the deceit, the hatred, all of that. The grace of God teaches us to do that. And so we see examples of this in places like Ephesians chapter 4. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So the the thief is supposed to put to death his desire to steal, and his and he's supposed to put to death the uh, and repent of his actual theft. And now he's supposed to find honest work, legitimate work, put his hand to it, in a you know, and it's not just for him. But Paul says so that he can be generous to someone else who has need. Not catch this, not so he can pay taxes. So the government can support someone who won't work, but that he can be, he himself can be generous of heart. We see something similar, so to speak, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. For even when I was with you, I would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul is affirming right there the creational connection between labor and eating. And he says, the person who will not, not the person who cannot, there are some people who need help because they cannot work. And they need compassion and they need mercy. What Paul has in mind here is the person who refuses to work. He says, that person should not take advantage of others. They should work. For I hear that some walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies, because not working often means that you're busy doing things you shouldn't be doing. And so work as love to God and neighbor reemerges within the context of our redemption. We generously serve their needs. I want to tell you kind of two stories. One is Hershey's. 
We've all seen their candy bars. And uh, I think almost everyone here has seen a s'more which has Hershey's, right? Back during the Great Depression, the Hershey family didn't want to lay everybody off. They knew that these people needed their jobs. But they also knew that they needed to actually physically work. And so what the Hershey family did was put them to work outside of the chocolate factory. They built homes. They built an amusement park. So if you've ever been to Hershey, Pennsylvania and gone to the park, that was built during the Great Depression in order to keep the, the workers busy. And they, bo- they built the hotel for people to come to the park because they anticipated a day when the, the, the Great Depression would be over and people would come to places like amusement parks. And not only that, there's more people they can employ. <laughs> so that's good stuff. And so they took their wealth, uh, instead of keeping it to themselves in, in fear because of the Great Depression, uh, they continued to pay their employees, but they paid them to do something else. If you read the book, The Search for God in Guinness, you discover that the early owners of the Guinness brewery were Christians. And they did a lot of work in making conditions for their employees better. They provided cultural and recreational opportunities for them. They, They put libraries up. They built housing that was much better than the housing that they had lived in in the city. They did a number of things for the well-being of their employees taking their profits and putting it into their employees in a way other than wages, although they reportedly paid them fairly well. When you're stuck and you're feeling the vexation of work, and I think some of you might fit in that, when you're, when you're filled with despair over your work, you, in a sense you need to do what the preacher did in Ecclesiastes. You need to remind yourself of God's goodness towards us through work. In other words, preach the gospel to yourself regarding your work. Say things like this, as he says in verse 24, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For apart from him who can, uh, who can eat or who can have enjoyment. So it's looking to God for your, for your provision, looking to God for your enjoyment of your work, looking to God who has given you the capacity to work, the gifts, the mind, the strength, whatever it is, the skill that you utilize, looking to God with gratitude for all of that. And so we see that in redemption, Christ's work delivers us from our sins with regard to work. Now, oh so briefly, that question of will we work after Jesus returns? To which I will answer, yes. Remember, it's who God is, and because it's, because you're made in the image of God, you're gonna work. We see in Revelation 22, verse 3, No longer will there be anything accursed, uh, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. I don't think that means we're only going to sing, but we will also work, because we're servants. Children, yet servants of the great King. 
The, the good part, of, however, is that the curse will have been completely lifted, and so there'll be no more thorns and thistles, no more sweat of our face, uh, no more pain and toil anymore. The frustration and futility will be gone, but the fruit will be abundant. And yet, I will remind you that we also enter into the rest that remains, that rest that is spoken about in Hebrews 3 and 4. Okay? But we enter this rest again by the all-sufficient work of Jesus, not our work. And so, in the consummation, we will work and worship unhindered by the curse. So our big answer to all of this is that we work and worship, or rather we work as part of our worship. That is how we were designed. That is how God made us uh, for His glory and our good. And so we, we under, need to understand our work in light of God's great story. So uh, uh, we have to remember that story and remember that we're part of that story. And as a result of being part of that story, that's why we experience this frustration. But this is also why we can experience redemption because of Christ. We, we see ourselves not as isolated, but we see ourselves as part of that larger story that God has written in redemption. And so evangelism and apologetics are essentially helping others to see themselves as part of God's great story. We understand our callings in light of creation. We understand our frustration in light of Adam's sin and Christ's curse upon it. But we have a final hope because of Christ's curse-bearing work as the Savior. And so when we reconnect with the story, we are to trust Him to reorder ourselves in our work until that day when the frustration and futility are finally lifted from us all. And so that whole Genesis thing, that matters a lot. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank You for work. We don't thank You for the frustrations that come with it, except in that they drive us to Jesus. And may they, in fact, drive us to Jesus so that we can thank you for them, too. We ask that you continue to remake us and reshape us, uh, to think more biblically about our work, both in terms of why we do what we do and why the frustrations exist and what Christ has done to rescue us, not from work, but from the curse that work experiences, so that we are better able to glorify and enjoy you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.